Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Welcome back to our section on objects from history. 100 bloody objects. What do you have for us today, Jamie? Object number eight, crossed Victorian sword sticks. Thomas Bond, the man who hunted Jack the Ripper. On the 9th of November, 1888, a surgeon spent much of the day performing an autopsy of a woman's corpse found mutilated in a squalid room in Dorset Street, Whitechapel. Her internal organs and viscera had been found removed, her breast cut off and her face disfigured beyond recognition. Her name was Mary Jane Kelly, a prostitute and the fifth apparent victim of the serial killer who had come to be known as Jack the Ripper. The surgeon was Thomas Bond, not only the advisor and pathologist to the Metropolitan Police, but also the pioneer who created and promoted the science of criminal profiling. So, Jamie, an extraordinary man, who was he? He was, in fact, my great-grandfather's uncle, which I suppose makes him my great-great-great-uncle. And he was the most remarkable individual. He was a countryman, he was a surgeon, he was a pathologist, he had been in war. He pioneered criminal profiling. So whether it's movies like Silence of the Lambs or the FBI offender profiling departments, they really owe it to pioneers like Thomas Bond. So I think it's right that we should talk about him today and the science that he promoted and the changes that were coming in to policing during the Victorian age. Okay, Jamie. So let's hear a little bit about his early life that helped him and introduced him to the world of medicine. Well, he was brought up in Somerset. Uh, It was a genteel, gentrified family. They had lands, they had large houses, and it was a privileged upbringing. But I think his first exposure to anything medical was age 15 when he went to see an uncle near Southampton. And there was a train crash. He was involved in actually keeping people still while their limbs were amputated. So I think from an early age, he obviously had some idea of surgery, some interest, some leaning towards that kind of profession. But in those days, it was still like barber surgery from the 16th, 17th and 18th century. It was pretty basic. And perhaps one of the reasons he became a pathologist was because the level of butchery, the level of death and mortality from basic surgery in those days. I know that even my stepfather, who was a gynecologist in the 30s when he first became a surgeon and learnt his craft in the Blitz in the East End of London at the East London Hospital, now the Royal London Hospital, he learnt his craft during the Blitz, operating on a large number of people. But he eventually wanted to become a brain surgeon, but because the mortality rate there was so high, he ended up as a gynecologist. And I think in the same way, it might be that Thomas Bond moved towards pathology, because why not deal with dead people? Because the people you're going to operate on anyway are probably going to die. 
Yes, I mean, he, as a young man, he was a younger son, but he had some wealth in the family and a nice home and so on. So he didn't have to do any of things, but he was obviously somebody who was an energetic Victorian. Yes, and even later on in life, he used to take the train to London, uh, keep his cabin on the train, stay in that carriage uh, overnight, but go out to hospitals and operate and treat people round the Paddington area where the train came in. And then he'd head back to Somerset and hunt. He lived for hunting. I mean, he prided himself on uh, hunting with every pack in England. He had his own pack of hounds. So he was very much a, a country gent. But in between that, he was a formidable surgeon and pathologist and obviously sort of caught the mood of the time and the technology of the time and developed it and came up with this idea of criminal profiling. He went to the University of London to train and he won the gold medal there for surgery, although he didn't then pursue his career in surgery. But he did work for a famous Dr. Robert Liston. Yes, and Robert Liston was essentially the great pioneer of ether, of general anaesthetic. He performed the first operation under general anaesthetic in 1846. It was still, as I said, like barber surgery from the, the previous centuries. I mean, Lister prided himself on being able to amputate limbs very quickly, which you had to do in order for the patient to survive. And on one occasion, he cut his assistant's fingers off. On another occasion, he was cutting a leg off at record speed and managed to cut the bollock off the patient. So Two it, for the price of one. <laughs> it was pretty hit and miss, shall we say. Mm. And there was another famous surgeon that uh, Thomas Bond was a student with, and um, that surgeon was showing and demonstrating how to remove a tumour from the neck of a patient and managed to sever the artery. Bond had to step forward and stick his finger in the pulsing blood that was coming from the neck. So it was pretty grim and pretty gruesome, and that's probably what persuaded him to move in the direction he did. Later on, as a young man, straight after medical school and getting his Bachelor of Medicine, he headed off to Prussia to join the Prussian army and work with them as a doctor and surgeon during the Austro-Prussian War, which lasted only seven weeks in 1866. But it obviously gave him a great deal of experience. And their family members today who have been surgeons and cut their teeth in places like Soweto because they learned how to deal with trauma wounds and terrible injuries and the sort of wounds that you wouldn't get uh, on the streets of London. And I think that's as a young man, as an adventurer, as a surgeon, Thomas Bond wanted to be at the coalface of, of surgery at that time. And a war is a good place to be. And when he arrived out in Prussia and when they went to war against the Austrians, he ended up finding himself in the middle of a cholera epidemic among the Prussian army and started dosing himself with castor oil and other patients, managed to survive the cholera epidemic. And I mentioned he was a bit of an adventurer. He actually carried a message for the Prussians across the Austrian lines to the Italians, who were also involved. So there was obviously a bit of skullduggery, espionage at the same time. 
So he certainly lived up to his name Bond. Yes, actually, you don't think it was a pizza order. <laughs> <laughs> it might well have been, but he put himself at risk to deliver it. That's for sure. That's for sure. Anyway, as a young man in his 20s, he returns back to England and manages to get a job with the Metropolitan Police. Yes, he did. Uh, that might have been helped by the fact that he married the daughter of a judge. He ended up, for the next 20 years or more, being their key surgeon and pathologist. So, of course, he was right at the epicentre of all the great Victorian murders of the time, and they, they certainly were pretty grisly. Because back then, there weren't the sort of technologies available to help the police discover who the guilty party was. I mean, unless you were caught with the bloody knife or made a confession or was seen coming from the scene of the crime or had the victim's money in your bank account, you weren't really going to be caught. So there were a lot of crimes that involved cutting up bodies and throwing them in the Thames. I mean, he was involved in a whole series of murders like that. Yes, they were some really gruesome um, murders, the Battersea Mystery, the Thames Torso Murder, and Percy Lefroy. Yes, and Percy Lefroy ended up being the first person who was caught because there was a composite image of him produced. So you can see that the technology was sort of moving forward, that the police were grasping at new methods, new procedures to try and help them catch criminals. So that case was extremely important in terms of moving things along, in the same way that obviously Marconi Radio and Morse helped catch criminals later on. At that time, you know, although Jack the Ripper was 1888, two years before, in 1886, Sigmund Freud had set up his clinic in Vienna with psychopathology, hypnosis, early therapy and talking. So you can almost say, you know, that was the start of the next 150 years of self-obsessed flakes dribbling on about how their parents favoured their siblings over them. So it wasn't necessarily an advantage, but it certainly showed that people were beginning to try and look inside the mind of criminals to understand motivation. And I suppose Thomas Bond picked up on that and being a medical man would have been very interested one of his early cases was the death, the suspicious death, in fact, murder, of the wealthy widow Julia Martha Thomas. Oh, it was an extraordinary case because what had happened was that Martha Thomas had been thrown down the stairs and then strangled by her maid, Kate Webster, who cut the body up, started boiling it up, reducing it, and the story has it that she was selling the dripping to local kids. Again, in true Victorian Gothic horror style. But what happened there was that Kate Webster couldn't boil up all the bodies. So she, she started leaving it in all manner of places and dropping bits in the Thames. And uh, I think there was a, a suitcase or a box full of the body parts as well. But that was the, the, the bit where they thought it was a prank by medical students, wasn't it, with a whole load of, of guts and stuff in a box? Yes, and it, it's worthy of medical students, actually. But Thomas Bond pointed out that actually 
she was brutally hacked to pieces. It wasn't done with any medical knowledge. It wasn't done with scalpels or anything like that. That was one of the keys, one of the clues that led to Kate Webster. So that was one of the cases that in which he succeeded. Yeah, and she was found guilty at the Old Bailey and sentenced to hang. Yes, and Thomas Bond was very much admired for his evidence. He was very concise, very clear, and painted the picture, sort of put the, the evidence together. You know, I've always sort of rather flattered myself that maybe, just maybe, that what I do with historical thrillers, getting into the mind of the bad guys and putting evidence together is really what he did. He was a storyteller in his own way, uh, getting the evidence and trying to paint a picture of what was happening. And he certainly did that with Jack the Ripper. And Jamie, that's just you liking to get in touch with your dark side. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it probably is. And the, 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 um, the other thing that was happening at the time, of course, was in the 1890s, uh, fingerprinting came along. The, the technology was moving forward, and Thomas Bond found himself right at the centre of that. It came to the fore, I suppose, with the Jack the Ripper murders. Yes. Well, we had at that time, just before we get into the murders, the famous Edwardian writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his creation, Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Didn't the study on Scarlet come out in 1887, I think, didn't it? Yeah. So again, there's a man, he, he trained as an ophthalmologist, and I think he based Holmes a lot on Joseph Bell, his tutor up in Edinburgh. And I think Conan Doyle had actually been his clerk as well. So... Uh, Conan Doyle admired his powers of observation, but he certainly would have known about Thomas Bond. Thomas Bond had been police surgeon by that stage since 1867. That's over 20 years by the time um, Jack the Ripper comes along in 1888. So Conan Doyle would certainly have known him through the College of Surgeons, would certainly have read about him in the sort of penny newspapers of the day. And Conan Doyle had his own medical background, didn't he? Yes, he did. He did. And Bond also had a, a, a private practice as well. So they certainly would have come across each other and, and they certainly would have known each other. Conan Doyle would have been aware of what he did, the sort of things that he was investigating and looking at. And so many of the things that you see Sherlock Holmes doing Thomas Bond would have been doing as well at the same time, merging detective work with surgery and pathology. Yes. Okay, well, let's get stuck into the murders. The canonical five, what does that mean? They were the five that were linked together as being performed by one murderer, one serial killer. And they were in a short space of time. They took place over about two months in 1888, starting at the end of August and going on till the beginning of November. So it was a short period before they just stopped, but they fell into that period where there were sort of 11 Whitechapel murders. The police wanted to know which ones were linked and how they were linked. Thomas Bond, when he actually started looking at the last murder victim, who was Mary Jane Kelly. That was the 9th of November, 1888, when he was brought in by the Metropolitan Police to do her post-mortem and see what clues he could find. It was at that time he also received all the paperwork 
from Robert Anderson, who was the deputy head of CID uh, at the Met, that he started really piecing it together and showing conclusively, proving that these were linked murders. So he wrote a letter the day after to Anderson and to the other heads of the police saying, these are linked murders. Apart from that, he then produced this psychological profile of the Ripper. On the 25th of October, 1888, Robert Anderson wrote to Bond asking him to examine material connected with the Jack the Ripper investigation. In his letter, Anderson enclosed copies of the evidence given at the inquests into the murders of Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes and asked Bond to deliver his opinion on the matter. Bond examined the papers for two weeks and replied to Anderson on the 10th of November, 1888. Mary Jane Kelly had been killed the morning before in Dorset Street and Bond had spent much of that day performing her autopsy. Bond's report said, I beg to report that I have read the notes of the four Whitechapel murders. 1. Bucks Row. 2. Hanbury Street. 3. Berners Street. 4. Mitre Square. I have also made a post-mortem examination of the mutilated remains of a woman found yesterday in a small room in Dorset Street. 1. All five murders were no doubt committed by the same hand. In the first four, the throats appear to have been cut from left to right. In the last case, owing to the extensive mutilation, it is impossible to say in what direction the fatal cut was made. But arterial blood was found on the wall in splashes close to where the woman's head must have been lying. 2. All the circumstances surrounding the murders lead me to form the opinion that the women must have been lying down when murdered and in every case the throat was first cut. 3. In the four murders of which I have seen the notes only, I cannot form a very definitive opinion as to the time that had elapsed between the murder and the discovering of the body. In one case, that of Berners Street, the discovery appears to have been made immediately after the deed. In Bucks Row, Hanbury Street and Mitre Square, three or four hours only could have elapsed. In the Dorset Street case, the body was lying on the bed at the time of my visit, two o'clock, quite naked and mutilated as in the annexed report. Rigor mortis had set in, but increased during the progress of the examination. From this, it is difficult to say with any degree of certainty the exact time that had elapsed since death, as the period varies from six to twelve hours before rigidity sets in. The body was comparatively cold at two o'clock, and the remains of a recently taken meal were found in the stomach and scattered about over the intestines. It is therefore pretty certain that the woman must have been dead about 12 hours, and the partly digested food would indicate that death took place about three or four hours after the food was taken, so one or two o'clock in the morning would be the probable time of the murder. 4. In all the cases there appears to be no evidence of struggling, and the attacks were probably so sudden and made in such a position that the women could neither resist nor cry out. In the Dorset Street case, the corner of the sheet to the right of the woman's head was much cut and saturated with blood, indicating that the face may have been covered with the sheet at the time of the attack. 5. In the four first cases, the murderer must have attacked from the right side of the victim. In the Dorset Street case, he must have attacked from in front or from the left, 
as there would be no room for him between the wall and the part of the bed on which the woman was lying. Again, the blood had flowed down the right side of the woman and spurted onto the wall. 6. The murderer would not necessarily be splashed or deluged with blood, but his hands and arms must have been covered and parts of his clothing must certainly have been smeared with blood. 7. The mutilations in each case, excepting the Berners Street one, were all of the same character and showed clearly that in all the murders the object was mutilation. 8. In each case the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor anatomical knowledge. In my opinion he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or any person accustomed to cut up dead animals. 9. The instrument must have been a strong knife at least six inches long, very sharp, pointed at the top and about an inch in width. It may have been a clasp knife, a butcher's knife or a surgeon's knife. I think it was no doubt a straight knife. 10. The murderer must have been a man of physical strength and of great coolness and daring. There is no evidence that he had an accomplice. He must, in my opinion, be a man subject to periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania. The character of the mutilations indicate that the man may be in a condition sexually that may be called satyriasis. It is, of course, possible that the homicidal impulse may have developed from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or that religious mania may have been the original disease, but I do not think either hypothesis is likely. The murderer in external appearance is quite likely to be a quiet, inoffensive-looking man, probably middle-aged and neatly and respectably dressed. I think he must be in the habit of wearing a cloak or overcoat, or he could hardly have escaped notice in the streets if the blood on his hands or clothes were visible. 11. Assuming the murderer to be such a person as I have just described, he would probably be solitary and eccentric in his habits. Also, he is most likely to be a man without regular occupation, but with some small income or pension. He is possibly living among respectable persons who have some knowledge of his character and habits, and who may have grounds for suspicion that he is not quite right in his mind at times. Such persons would probably be unwilling to communicate suspicions to the police for fear of trouble or notoriety, whereas if there were a prospect of reward, it might overcome their scruples. I am, dear sir, yours faithfully, Thomas Bond. That's fascinating. Thomas Bond throws light onto several areas, making it a very clear and objective thought process. What do you think, Jamie? Yes, I mean, there's certain things that stand out. I mean, the first one is that his claim that the attacker had no medical knowledge. I mean, people have claimed for years that the person who inflicted those sort of wounds might have been a doctor. I mean, you look at the cast list of suspects over the years, and people have said Sir William Gull, the Queen's physician, or Sir John Williams, the obstetrician and gynaecologist of Pitt, Princess Beatrice, Queen Victoria's daughter. And so there's always been that suspicion. But he pours cold water on that. Even the police at the time thought it might have been a medical man. And so, yet he, he doesn't even think that it's uh, somebody who is a rather badly trained butcher. Yes, exactly. And that, so again, that, that 
throws cold water on the idea that someone like Jacob Levy, who was a local butcher, could have been uh, the ripper. So that's one fascinating bit. The other bit that really stands out is his claim that the man would have been a person of independent means and was possibly wearing a cloak. That, I think, has leaked into ripperology and the ripper myth, the idea that the ripper might have been a toff wearing a top hat and a, carrying a sword cane, all of that sort of thing. <laughs> it was very concise, like all his evidence. And it was fascinating that he moves the sort of evidence into the psychological area, into the mental state. And that was something revolutionary. And that's why it's so pioneering, that small list really is the start of what you see today. That's why it's fascinating to talk about him now. So the possible killers, I mean, there really is a shopping list of names. And and over time, at the time itself and in the present period, there are still more names being added. Who do we think are some of the likely candidates? Oh, there have been books on Sir William Gull, on Walter Sickett, the painter, because it's been argued that his paintings after the Ripper murders suddenly became very dark and were of prostitutes in half light and all of this sort of thing. It's just endless. It's butcher, baker, candlestick maker, itinerant Irishmen, Polish dockers, fish porters butchers, anyone. Prince Albert, Duke of Clarence. Yes, because he was troubled and scandal hit and all of that sort of thing. So he was the top toff, really, who was brought in as a suspect and has been regarded as a possible suspect. Even Thomas Bond himself has been mentioned uh, over the last century as a possible suspect. Because one of the things about Thomas Bond was that when he came to... London on the train to do his medical stuff. He used to go and visit the Lock Hospital, which was basically the first official venereal disease clinic uh, in Britain. He took a great interest in that. And obviously, there were a lot of prostitutes there. So it was said, oh, well, he takes an interest in prostitutes. He knows some of the victims. And so that's why his name was connected to it, Apart, quite apart from being the police surgeon and pathologist at the time. The most uh, popular choice seems to be Montague Thomas Druitt. So Sir Melville McNaughton, who was the crime police commissioner, uh, wrote a report and he thought that Druitt was the most likely uh, person. Druitt, said to be a doctor and of good family who disappeared at the time of the Miller's court murder and whose body, which was said to have been upwards of a month in the water, was found in the Thames on the 31st of December, or about seven weeks after that murder. He was sexually insane, and from private information, I have little doubt but that his own family believed him to have been the murderer. Bond himself quashed the idea, as you saw in his report, of the killer being a medical man, and it seemed, however sexually depraved or psychotic the killer was, the the person who perpetrated those crimes didn't have medical knowledge. And you can see from the level of violence that it was so brutal and so unfocused in a way that there probably wasn't a medical mind behind it. And Thomas Bond was a man of great compassion. I mean, working at the Locke Hospital, 
He tended what he called a low, dirty and wretched class, the shame of humanity. And it's tempting to wonder whether one or more of the Ripper's future victims might at some point have come under his care. Well, one never knows. I think one of the reasons he became involved in trying to treat venereal disease was that during his early time, during the Austro-Prussian War, places like Vienna and Berlin and the Prussian army were absolutely riddled with venereal disease. I think the the figures for the Prussian army was something like 30% had some kind of STD, and most of it was syphilis. So he was very aware of how it could wreak havoc, quite apart from the cholera he dealt with at the time. So he was quite at home dealing with soldiers and prostitutes and those who had fallen on hard times. And I think that that was very much part of his motivation, very much part of what he did, and part of the motivation why he wanted to get to the bottom of why people had been murdered, trying to help solve the mysteries and the barbaric murders that occurred during Victorian times. Although he was known for his work with the Metropolitan Police, he had a very full life elsewhere as well. Not only was he hunting in the West Country, but he had work that he did for the railways. Yes, and again, maybe that goes back to when he was 15 and dealing with that railway accident. He actually advised railway companies on false claims for insurance and compensation. So it's not just a modern phenomenon, people claiming whiplash. There were all sorts of people claiming compensation and trying to sue the railway companies for the sudden breaking of railway carriages and locomotives and people being thrown forward. And But there were terrible accidents all the way through those early years of trains. Even by the 1880s, trains had only been around since the mid-1820s, so it was pretty much a new technology, and safety features weren't exactly at the forefront of the technological developments of the time. We know it was dangerous, uh, given what happened to William Huskinson in 1827. That was during the opening, or at least the celebration of the completion of the Liverpool-Manchester railway line. Poor old Huskisson was on the train that was drawn by Stevenson's rocket. Wellington, Duke of Wellington, who was in his own private carriage further along, uh, was sitting there and Huskisson wanted to go and make amends and patch up a friendship that had fallen by the wayside. So he got out of the train with a few others, even though they had been told to stay on board, went along, started talking to Wellington through the carriage window. An alarm was raised because there were trains coming in the opposite direction, a parade of trains. And Huskisson was a little confused by this. He ran backwards and forwards across the opposite line a couple of times, then decided to climb up onto the door of Wellington's carriage. The door unclipped and opened, and Huskisson was basically thrown in front of the oncoming train was hit by it, fell on the track, had a mutilated, mangled leg, and died shortly afterwards. So it was a pretty bloody technology. It was a baptism of fire, and people just made it up as they went along. So even a few decades later, 
I think Bond had quite a lot of work dealing with these claims, dealing with accidents, but also dealing with the fraud that came with it. I wonder how many guineas his wife got in compensation. <laughs> what, Huskisson? Huskinson's wife. Yes. Well, six, there is six guineas or something. Well, there is actually a statue of Huskisson in the East End of him wearing full Roman emperor's toga. So he got a nice statue. He out lives of it. on. <laughs> he lives on and yet is totally forgotten. And yet, like so many of these people coming back to Thomas Bond, um, as he got older, he had certain medical complaints and he'd seen and, and had to deal with a lot of quite stressful things. And he'd been giving himself doses of laudanum. Yes, in in the same way that so many did during the Victorian era. He was a very robust character. He was much loved in the county. He had a pretty no-nonsense approach. He once advised someone who was suffering from the depression that the best cure for depression was drinking a pint of champagne and a pint of burgundy on alternate days and hunting with hounds three days a week. Actually, it's not a bad remedy. It gets you out, stops you gazing at your navel. And country pursuits have often helped a lot of people. Certainly riding have helped a lot of people. But maybe that caught up with him. Maybe he had a riding accident. It's thought that maybe he was suffering from colitis or incipient cancer of the gut. It obviously made him melancholic. He was dealing with terrible pain. So many of those Victorians turned to things like laudanum or cocaine. If you look at Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes not only was taking laudanum, but was injecting himself with 7% cocaine solution. So drugs were widely available. Being a medical man, he would have known what worked for him, what helped quell the pain. But being a soldier, I suppose, as well, having been exposed to that at an early age, I think he realised that it wasn't going to get better. Whether he, it was a fit of melancholy or he was deranged or made psychotic by the laudanum, it did catch up with him. And eventually, in 1901, when he was 59, he threw himself from his window in his London home, which was seven the sanctuary, a house just next to Westminster Abbey. It was a big enough news to actually make it into the illustrated uh, London newspapers at the time and is actually on our gallery of photos. But it's a desperate end and very sad you know, for someone like Thomas Bond, who had such an extraordinary life. A Roman death. That is the story of Thomas Bond, Victorian criminal profiler. Do we have a postscript, Jamie? A short postscript, because he was essentially landed gentry and he loved the life of the countryside. He's buried in Orchard Portman Churchyard, where so many other family members are buried, in spite of committing suicide. So obviously it was believed at the time that he was under the influence of laudanum, he wasn't in his right mind, and therefore he was allowed to have a proper Christian burial in spite of the sort of Victorian mores at the time. I mean, they were pretty strict on things like that. But it's ironic that his large country mansion, Orchard Portman House, is today a 46-bed 
psychiatric hospital. And I think, given that he was a man of compassion, a medical man, I think he would have approved. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.